Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm joined today by my good friend, John Tamney, a terrific economist who's got a, uh, an upcoming book called uh, When Politicians Panicked, uh, The New Coronavirus, Expert Opinion, and a Tragic Lapse of Reason. Uh, John, <laughs> glad to have you on. Just, just by way of prologue a bit, you know, we're, we're doing this in audio and I've been, we've been doing our TV show in our studio, but I want to add audio to the mix as podcasts so that we can get a lot more content out. Uh, and there are a lot of smart people with you being among the foremost that I like to have continuing conversations with uh, today about the virus and the lockdown. Uh, but as you and I know, a lot of other things uh, uh, that we need to cover and get out there. So John, hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, let's jump right in. Uh, I, love your, I love your conclusion or one of your conclusions. If it's not apparent to readers yet, the view here is that the reaction by politicians to the coronavirus amounts to the biggest 20th, 20th, 21st century crime against humanity and nothing else comes close. Yes, um, let's, let's, get, let's get right to the point. This has been a disaster for mankind, not a disaster for the elite. But even the New York Times, which has supported these lockdowns and this massive global government reaction, has acknowledged that the economic impact means that 280 million plus of the world's living humans are on the fast track towards starvation. When the U.S. shuts down economically, it's felt globally in tragic ways. And so you have people in places in countries like the Philippines saying, will the virus kill us, but, or will starvation get to us first? That's what the world faces give, given this reaction to a virus. So what, what, what triggered it? I, I'm, you know, this whole thing came along out of China. Could you give us kind of your background of how you saw the scenario playing out? Well, I think China made it very clear early on that it was never, whatever you think about the virus, that it was never lethal. And how we know this is that U.S. companies, the biggest, best, most prosperous U.S. companies, think Apple, think McDonald's, think Nike, think Starbucks, have major exposure to China. Uh, there are 4,100 Starbucks in China. Apple gets a fifth of its iPhone sales in China. Uh, China is Nike's second largest market. And this is important because it's well known now that the virus began, was first discovered in November in Wuhan. So it probably began spreading long before that. And the view from the experts, at least, is that the virus spreads very quickly. And so we had months and months of quick, rapid spread of the virus, not just through China, but around the world, with no major spike in deaths. And people say, well, you know, the Chinese in particular, they're dishonest. They, they don't, you can't trust their government statistics. Smart, China's the most smartphone-dense country in the world. Does anyone seriously think that they could have hidden a major death count, uh, for even if the media didn't, even if the government didn't want to get it out? The Soviet Union couldn't even hide Chernobyl back in the 80s when, when media was much more primitive. Are we to believe that the Chinese couldn't hide it? We knew in January this wasn't lethal. Say what you want, it was not lethal. You say that... I think you wrote that Federal Express has got a distribution facility in Wuhan with 906 employees and uh, what they have, like four cases and uh, two were non-symptomatic and the other two got it, but then they recovered pretty quickly. 
Yeah, it's fascinating that this, yes, there's, that's one of the first, my book is broadly about why politicians overreact and what a tragedy it is, but it concludes early on that yes, we, we knew from China and FedEx is the first example I use. Uh, Fred Smith gave an interview with uh, Brett Baer on, on Fox News on March 18th and he said, as you said, 900 plus employees uh, all of them tested right in Wuhan, touching everything, no masks, none of the, none of the normal protections. So four of them were, were tested as positive. As you note, two of them, they were false positives. None of them died. FedEx is hardly some anecdote. This is a large operation at the epicenter of it. FedEx, as you know better, much better than anyone as a public company, is required to report things happening that could have a material impact on its earnings, um, on its workforce, that it didn't even need to really report this in a major way tells you that this was many things. Again, it just wasn't lethal. Well, not only was it not lethal, they came out of the box saying they, we could anticipate a death rate of 5%. I'm not sure 5% of what, but a big number. And we're predicting two to 3 million, 4 million deaths in the United States. And as we've gotten five or six months into this, it turns out the real number is closer to 0.26%, maybe not even that. If you age adjust it, and if you look at where all the deaths have actually occurred, if you're over 80, yeah, you're, you've got a big risk. But the risk for people under 70 years old, I think the death rate's been about 0.001. So this this is a nothing. And yet it was made into into something of epic proportions. There's got to be there's got to be a political agenda here, John. This is this is not just about health. I mean, I, I you know, I'm deeply skeptical of our of our so-called leaders, and and I think now that they've gotten uh, a taste of this kind of power, this this lockdown. You know, they they said it was going to last two weeks, and now we're all we're coming up onto six months, and in the state of Maryland, where close to D.C., where I live. Um, you know, they're, they're upping the restrictions rather than reducing them, even in the face of declining, um, declining cases. It's really and truly remarkable, as, as you clearly point out, a lot of the deaths are people dying with it as opposed to them dying of it. And uh, I, I want to stress, however, that the case for lockdown becomes worse the bigger projections of death. Let's go back to the Imperial College. They thought 2 million Americans were going to die from the virus. If that's the expectation, lockdowns are wholly superfluous. What about death would require us to, the potential for death would require then force from government to say, you can't go, you can't leave your house. You don't need it. Now, if it's 10,000, if it's a much smaller number, Lockdowns are unnecessary and they're just tragic for the economy. But again, if, if people, if, if it's that kind of number, we don't need the law. We don't need politicians to tell us to stay home. We can do that on our own. We're going to take precautions on our own. And as my book points out, that's what was happening around the U.S. There were already people self-selecting into lockdown because they, they were right or wrong. They were fearful of it. We didn't want politicians to pile on. Well, that, that's an important point. Uh, you know, one of the fun things I did as a kid is I went to Woodstock in 1969, <laughs> and that was that was as good as it sounded. Although I think I was pretty young and stupid, but it was it was a great party, uh, and I didn't know it at the time. But we were we were holding Woodstock in the midst of a pandemic, 
And it was just one of those things that diseases came along, viruses came along, and you had to deal with it. But the main thing that people did and have done throughout history is they take care of themselves. And the biggest, uh, one of the big problems I have with the way this has been treated is that we're being all treated like children, as if we don't know how to take responsibility for our own health, our family's health, and, and protect ourselves. And yet it's all been mandated as if, uh, as if uh, we don't know how to do that. Now, you, you put it so well uh, that somehow we don't have a clue that we need to be led by others. Uh, everyone knows people like this who quite literally will not open their do a door with their bare hand, uh, who whenever they get onto an airplane, they wipe down the tray tables and the armrests, uh, who whenever they come home, wash their hands. Uh, can I say I have a wife like this? And the point of this- You're, you're married to this? <laughs> she, she can't hear or see this, but she, she's seen me write about it. And that's the point. Okay, she can't listen to this part of the show. Americans don't, people don't need a law. People are so careful for all the reasons you say. And, and at the same time, I think it's so important what you say about Woodstock is that yes, that happened amid a pandemic. Imagine if they tried to lock things down in 1968 or 69, they could not have done it. Everyone's job then was a destination. Nowadays, writ well, the well-to-do, they can do their jobs from anywhere thanks to technological advances. And so these lockdowns have, been a, have had a decadent quality to them. Oh, wait, you can't work from home? You're not mobile? Well, expand on that because you're saying something that is so true is that there's, I've got a different definition. One of them, there's the analog world, which is the physical world where you got to work in a factory or wait tables or deliver deliver the mail. And that's, you. and you put it, you go to a destination for your job. Whereas now we've got, I don't know, 30, 40% of the elites in this country that live in a digital world and they don't need to go into an office. You can write your, your columns. You can, uh, you know, be a politician. You can do a lot of the, the, you can work on your computers and things like you don't need to go into the office. So this lockdown really has not locked you down in a work sense. No, it's, it's, it's been, it's been the, 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 how do I put it that it's been the equivalent, the ultimate nosed upturn from the elite to the rest of us. Oh, you're not like us. Yeah. There's that, this famous story. Uh, exactly. Jack, exactly. You know, the name for the, the original private equity person. He was speaking, I believe at Yale at their graduation. He said, well, now that you're graduated and you're all going off on your grand tours of the world's capitals and people looked at each other, wait, what? But that's what he did. And so um, the, the elites in the U S now are saying, Oh, well, we can lock down because everyone's like us. Well, the reality is the vast majority of Americans aren't like that. Their jobs were a destination. And so they had what gave them a chance to, for a better life, what, what paid the bills ripped away from them. And then added to it, politicians said, here's $1,200 for your troubles. We'll take away what gives you dignity and we'll hand you a check. We'll put you onto the payroll of government. I can't think of a more obnoxious horrendous thing to say to people. And, and yet that's what's happened. Where is the outrage with this, that businesses that never ever wanted to take a cent from government 
were because they had no choice in the matter. They were one day told, your business is no longer yours. And if you want to survive, you need to get on the government dole. I can't think of a more hideous thing that politicians did. And again, it's hard for me to talk about this because it makes me so mad what they did to good, honest business people. Well, and the, the, the other aspect of that is they made, uh, you get some person working in a government, state government bureaucracy, and they get together in a conference room, and 12 of them decide what's essential work and what isn't essential work. And I know you and I share the view that all work is essential. And it's not only essential economically, but it, more importantly, it's essentially, it's essential morally. It's essential in, in, in sense of our well-being and, and I know you and I share the view that there's no job that's a bad job or work that's bad work. All work is, uh, is blessed. And yet they decided, okay, well, these four, this 40% of the economy is non-essential. It's crazy. And, you know, it's coming back to, to bite us and these unemployment numbers and these people who are, you know, epidemic, you know, we've got an epidemic of opioid. We get an epidemic of teenage suicide. We've got an epidemic of, uh, domestic abuse, we've got an epidemic of uh, despair, but not among the elites. And so therefore it's sort of unseen in the, in the, among the chattering class. That's right. No, it, it, it's so sickening. Yes, obviously we do clearly agree that work is, there's no, no such thing as a bad job. And to think that politicians just decided one day we'll pick winners and losers and we'll take from people the, the dignity that comes with getting up every day. Not every day at work is good, but boy, you feel better for having done it. And I can say in my case that I can't not do what I do. It would be a very high number for someone to bid me out of what I love uncontrollably. And to think that there are personal trainers who got such joy from doing this. No, 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 you can't do that anymore. You'd be too close to someone else. To think chefs, we're basically told, wrap your genius, genius in plastic now. You must hand your food out in a plastic wrapper like you're a criminal to other people out, out the door. To think that waiters who built up their, their, their clientele in a sense were told you can't do that. Just the numerous jobs where people said, oh, it doesn't matter anymore, but we'll write you a check for your troubles. I think it's, it's it, in many ways, it's the most hideous thing about that, this, what they did, just the arrogant elitism that, that, that was behind these hit, these awful lockdowns. Well, the, the basis behind the lockdowns or the logic behind the lockdowns, the, what they call science, there's really zero factual basis. And the CDC itself sort of morphed from month to month to month. It's, it's not at all lethal. It's going to be lethal. You don't need masks. You need masks. Uh, you know, the social distancing guideline for, for a century with, uh, you know, I think starting in 1918 with that uh, terrible pandemic, and that was a real one and it was lethal. Uh, they had social distancing guidelines of one meter, which is about three, little over three feet. And then a couple of bureaucrats in, um, in London early on in January, February, decided, well, people didn't really know what a meter was, so let's make it six feet. And so we have this distancing guideline of six feet, and there's no scientific evidence that it's six feet whatsoever, yet the social consequences of, of being distanced six feet versus being distanced three feet are enormous. It means there's no, 
spectator sports. It means restaurants have to close down, bars close down. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, and you really, and this is something I know bothers you a lot, is you've got a couple of people arbitrarily in positions of government that decide the number of six feet, and this has untold consequences upon billions and billions of people worldwide. It, it does, and it's all based on really weak information. And, and let me be clear, I'm not saying this as a scientist. I'm just saying this as someone with common sense. But you don't need to be a scientist. You can look at the way the numbers are rolling in now, the cases. Well, you can, but the... even if you couldn't <laughs> look at the numbers, what you could say is what we don't know could fill many books. Uh, let's... What scientists don't know could fill even more books. Precisely. And you go back to the 1980s and you look at the AIDS scare. Remember, remember it was uh, Anthony Fauci wrote, wrote a paper back in 1983 saying that AIDS could be transmitted from husband and wife just by being in the same room. The view back then was that in, in England, they put up signs in London saying that one, in, one out of five Londoners or Eng, England or Britishers would get, would get AIDS. Turns out a microscopic portion of the population got it. It was largely transmitted by, by homosexual contact. At the time, remember, it was all of our disease. This is not a comment on homosexual. It's just what we didn't know back then. Remember when Rock Hudson famously kissed the beautiful Linda Evans on Dynasty? And after he died, oh, yeah, that was, well, yes. that was, uh, you know, that, he said it was the worst day of his life because he thought he had maybe potentially killed one of his friends. It turns out that there was n nothing to worry yeah. about at all, but what we didn't know was endless. And so back then we reacted in the way reactive, we didn't shut down the global economy. This time in response to a virus, it's not just that the numbers are coming in low. We shut this down based on an utter lack of knowledge about how the virus spread, which is precisely what you wouldn't want to do. You want to learn how it spreads, which is why you don't bring people down. Well, and then there's this fundamental thing that, again, I don't think you need to be a scientist. I, you know, I think you need to be good at math and follow the statistics and the, and the facts of history. And the facts of history suggest and I'm 98.9% of being very scientific about that this is true, <laughs> is that there's no instance in history of human beings shutting down the spread of a virus. You know, Angelo, I had uh, Angelo Cordovil on a show or two ago, and we were talking about this. You know, he points out that Angela Merkel, who's the prime minister of Germany, who is a scientist trained, I, I'm, I'm not sure what her, what her precise degree is, but uh, she said, hey, you know, this is a virus and this is not going to stop until 70% of Germans have been exposed to it or got it and developed antibodies. And then she said, that is that. Let's let it, you know, let's let it go. So just this, this premise that somehow we can, we can set up these defenses against this virus. I have a friend, Bob McEwen, who, who says wearing masks is like, is like putting up a cyclone fence in your backyard to uh, prevent uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> no evidence the mask works either for this kind of virus. So we're dealing with something that's going to happen. And the, 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 the sooner it happens in a controlled way, the, the, the quicker we're going to get out of this. And I keep coming back to the fact that there are vulnerable people. If you're over 80, you have a comorbidity. If you're, if you're obese, morbidly obese, you have diabetes too, or you've got lung and heart conditions, you've got to be very careful. But other than that, the lethality rate just is not there. Mm -hmm. 
And, and, and it's so true, the lethality rate's not there. But think about also what it says. We are a world that's evolved based on people being around each other. Uh, Steve Jobs built Apple's latest headquarters based on the idea that he wanted humans to be bumping into each other and spreading ideas. So in response to a virus, I love what you and Cotaville point out that never in history have we responded in this way to a virus. And logically so, because the very people who have ended all sorts of diseases, let's go back in time, tuberculosis used to be the biggest killer in the United States. Uh, pneumonia was captain of man's death. Uh, why are they no longer? Well, they're- You, you, you walk us through that because you, you're, you've got a chapter in there on sort of the history of, of economic progress and how medical progress went lockstep with economic freedom and innovation and a lot of things that were incredibly lethal even just a hundred years ago are not now because of uh, free economic exchange. Yes, absolutely. It used to be in the 19th century that medical school was a trade school. It was just, it was very primitive. And back in the 19th century, if you broke your femur, uh, the, the operation was amputation, but you had one in three chances of death, a, a broken You break hip. a leg and you get amputated? Yeah, that, that, was, that was how they operated. But you, you had a high chance of dying. And then a broken hip was a death sentence, of course. Um, uh, cancer, forget about it, but realize most people didn't live long enough to get cancer. As of 1910, cancer was the number eight disease, number eight killer in the U.S. because tuberculosis and pneumonia, pneumonia, the captain of men's death, got you first. And so what changed this? Well, uh, Johns Hopkins made a lot of money in the railroad industry and created the, the, the Johns Hopkins University and the great medical school. And then John D. Rockefeller, of the 500 plus million that he gave out in his lifetime, 400 million plus he gave to medical advances. That gradually, it gave scientists and doctors the means to create cures for all sorts of things that used to kill us. And so yes, nowadays it's, we talk about dying of old age. Does anyone realize what a luxury that is that 40% of the COVID deaths have taken place in nursing homes? What does that tell us? People never got to old age before. Alzheimer's disease, massive economic progress. To think that people actually have a disease that takes them because they essentially live too long. And so it raises the question, if the economy continues to grow, what admittedly horrible diseases we'll discover, but ones that come much, much later in life. Economic growth elongates life and living standards, yet in response to a virus, they destroyed the economy and created economic desperation. I can't think of anything more backwards. You know, the, the, it just occurs to me that this virus lands in the middle of a culture, society, America today. We've been talking about snowflakes and safe spaces and, and speech and all those sorts of things that are supposed to make people vulnerable. And increasingly, we've been trying to engineer risk-free society. What you're saying is that that you know, forget about that before the invention of antibiotics, which is just in this century and all the advances that we've had even in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, even then we can't eradicate risk and yet that's exactly um, what we're trying to do. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there, there are real limits, I, I think, on where 
what we can expect people to what we can expect government to protect people from and most of which people most of that which people want to get protected from government can't do no they can't and governments aren't meant to protect them from these things let's say something that you and i may or may not agree with uh, i assume anthony fauci's a smart guy i don't like what he's done but i'm gonna assume he's a smart guy but is he smarter than all of the fans inside Washington National Stadium? I say that because he's a big Nationals fan. No, he's not. The people in a packed Nationals stadium collectively know far more than he does. That's why markets work. Markets are just this decentralized uh, combination of knowledge. Yet every time there's some sort of crisis, that, something that government deems crisis, what do they do? They centralize power in the hands of the few. Is it any wonder that we get to situations like this when we let the, the experts control what they couldn't possibly control? Invariably, they're going to make mistakes. That's why you let, you let people free. Markets work because markets are information personified. When you hand government control, you're basically shutting out information. You're blinding society information on the way to crisis situations like this. Government not only shouldn't constitutionally, at least federally, protect us from virus, government can't protect us from viruses. Well, I agree. How do we unwind this? Uh, you know, the, the reins of power have never been held tighter by governors and mayors, particularly in the Democrat-controlled states. I was at a, I introduced Christy Noem as the governor of... Uh, South Dakota at a recent conference, and it's striking. She didn't, she didn't do any of this, and yet South Dakota is thriving without, uh, with very low cases and lower, lower, lower hospitalizations and very few deaths. So you've got the counter example of, of South Dakota, and then you have New York and, or Maryland or Virginia, which have been equally uh, draconian in their lockdowns. The governors enjoy it. They like this. So where do we, where do we, uh, where do we go from here? They do. No, I think you're right. I think they were amazed by how much power they actually had. And so where do we go from here? It's a scary, this is why, even though I cite numbers in the book, I don't stress them. The penultimate chapter in the book, I talk about how the numbers don't add up. It's not just South Dakota and New York. Isn't it interesting that in Vietnam, they have yet to report a death from the coronavirus. Uh, so people say, well, no, it's in poor countries hit most. Well, what about uh, Myanmar? A uh, very low death count. Uh, but it's crowded cities, they say. Well, as you look at Thailand, uh, Bangkok is the most crowded city I think I've ever been to. Uh, that's where the virus first reached outside of China. The death rate there is microscopic. And so who knows why it spreads? But my argument is, this is why you can't ever have a locked, this, this is why we don't want to focus on numbers. Because if we do, the next time a virus comes about, and a virus will, people will say, well, this time is different. It's supposed to hit young people. It's supposed to hit people in their 30s. We've got to lock down. No, 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 no lockdowns blind us because then we, they don't teach us how the virus spreads. You want 330 million Americans doing different things, experimenting different ways. Some will literally hide in their houses, biting their nails for months. Some will say, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm going to live, I'm going to go, I'm going to hit the bars. I'm going to chase women. I'm going to chase men. 
You want those people to, you want to find out if somehow they're at a bigger risk than those locked down at home. And you want the people in, in between trying different things. When you limit freedom on its own, that's the biggest problem. But when you limit freedom, you blind people. Well, but that's, that requires enormous political courage. And because if there's one death that shows up, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're brought down by that one person that did something. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, John, this is, uh, I, I don't, I, you and I are in violent agreement that freedom is the way to make this thing uh, go away, or, or at least for society to absorb it, experience it, and deal with it. You know, the Venetians knew how to handle a, a virus. They'd lock people in who had it or remotely uh, associated with it. They locked them in their boats out in the harbor. They couldn't come in until they'd gone through the quarantine period. The, the Boy Scout handbook has got a chapter on, on uh, quarantining the sick and leaving the healthy to live their lives. We've done just the opposite. We've quarantined the healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, delayed. We've well, delayed progress. So... What I would like to do is I want to, we, we're about at the end of this particular segment. What I want to do is let, let's come in, let's come back to, uh, to a second conversation about why this shouldn't be about the numbers. This should be about principles and this should be about what really works and what really works is freedom, economic freedom and people to make their own choices and the freedom to make your choices also means the freedom to fail. And we've taken failure out of the equation for much of society. I'd, I'd like to talk with you about that um, next time, maybe next week or two or so. Love to. Well, John, John Tamney has got an upcoming book titled uh, uh, When Politicians Panic, The New Coronavirus, Expert Opinion and a Tragic Lapse of Reason. And that's a great title, and I so agree. Uh, John Tamney, uh, thanks for coming with me. You've been listening to The Bill Walton Show. And uh, uh, Join us for our next uh, episode. We'll get into this and other extremely interesting topics. Uh, take care. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.